Hello again from the heart of Spurgeon, a podcast in which we're walking through sermons preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a Victorian pastor and preacher and evangelist much used of God, sermons that still bring a great blessing to those who engage with them. If you'd like to learn more, you can sign up at the Media Gratii website. Just find this podcast once you've searched for them and uh, they'll send you a note once a week with a reading scheme identifying not only a sermon that you can read every day if you're so inclined, but also a weekly sermon that we do in this podcast that we look at in more detail. If you're on Twitter, you can find us at Reading Spurgeon. This week we're reading from Sermon 150 to 157 and the sermon on which we're focusing is 152. It's entitled Things That Accompany Salvation and it was delivered on Sabbath morning 20th of September 1857 by Spurgeon at the Royal Surrey Gardens in the Music Hall and the text is uh, the title. Hebrews 6 and verse 9, things that accompany salvation. It's uh, uh, just picking up a particular phrase. And Spurgeon knows what he's doing with it, and he knows what he's not doing with it. I suspect that this is the kind of sermon that a lot of people have in mind when they dismiss Spurgeon as an exegete of Scripture. He begins, I am not quite certain that my text will warrant all I shall say upon it this day if read and understood in its connection. So I suspect there's at least a smile on his face as he says that. He wants us to appreciate that he knows what he's doing and how he's doing it. I think that's that's important to take into account. Now the whole verse says, that, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you, yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner, things that go along with salvation, things that are connected with it. And that's the idea that Spurgeon is picking up. I have taken the words, he says, rather by accommodation than otherwise and shall make use of them as a kind of heading to the discourse which I hope to be enabled to deliver. And he explains what he's done. He's effectively sat back and thought about that particular text, and it's struck him that there are some particular things that accompany salvation. There are things that go along with it. And rather than... uh, look at the verse immediately in its context. He wants to look at the the idea of association with salvation. What are the things that carried along with salvation? And he says that his thoughts assume the form of an allegory. So here's a, here's a likeness, things that are like other things, a way of communicating truth by image and illustration. And uh, in this, I think he uh, owes perhaps more than a small debt to John Bunyan, whose writings he so much appreciated, not least the Pilgrim's Progress. Now, that's then the the notion that Spurgeon is going to concentrate on. He, He wants to think about the things that go along with salvation. And what he ends up preaching is a, a vividly imaginative sermon along this basic idea of association with or connection with salvation 
in the form of this allegory that really is a a, a systematic setting forth of the experience of being saved. Now, I'm not going to suggest that we should all start preaching like Spurgeon, not least because I think most of us would struggle to do something like this. What I am going to suggest is that it's not wrong to preach like this from time to time at the very least. And bear in mind that this is not Spurgeon's normal mode. Uh, If you like, he's let his imagination off the rein here. But he's still careful, still thoughtful, the the text is more of a point of departure, a springboard, rather than something he's going to expound, as he often does. He's not ignorant of what he's doing, but he's doing this quite deliberately. And he reminds us, even as he begins, that these virtues and graces accompany salvation, that they don't cause it. He wants us to think about the things that go along with salvation, and in the in the context, in the uh, the passage that he has in mind, he's he's probably not far off the mark. But what he's doing is extending the idea so that he's going to consider not just the things that come immediately after salvation, but the whole complex of God's saving work. And so he he has in his mind this uh, great uh, army on the march with a monarch. Uh, governing the whole thing. And salvation is that the treasure that is being carried through the world by this army. And so he asks, what's the advance guard that goes far in the distance? What's the uh, army or the troop that immediately precedes salvation? What accompanies salvation immediately? And who is bringing up the rear attending upon this salvation? So it's as if you're standing there watching an army in review and these are the people who are marching past you. And first of all, then, in the marches of troops and armies, there are some that are outriders and go far ahead of the other troops. So what do you see way out in the distance before salvation even comes in view? The first is election, the second predestination, the third redemption, with covenant as the captain of them all. And if you know uh, the holy war in particular, you might be thinking, hang on a minute, Spurgeon really is leaning on Bunyan a little bit here. And and that's quite possible. And he's just now going to review these uh, military figures as they march past us. First of all, before salvation came into the world, you've got election uh, out in the very forefront marking the houses to which salvation should come. You've got predestination following uh, along with it, not just marking the house, but mapping the road, this uh, emphasis on the absolute providence of a sovereign God. Then redemption. Election marked the house, predestination mapped the road, but the, uh, the way for salvation needed to be cleared. And only redemption could do that with the all-victorious cross of Jesus Christ. Uh, The mountains of our sin were smitten by redemption, split in half, leaving a valley for salvation uh, to come and the Lord's redeemed to march through with it. The great gulf of God's offended wrath was was, uh, bridged by redemption with the cross and so an everlasting passage was made by which the armies of the Lord may cross. 
So Spurgeon's thinking here in terms of uh, God's past determinations and intentions, his accomplishments in history, election, predestination, then in time and space, redemption, reminding us that under the banner of the eternal covenant, these great figures are rallied to battle. The everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. So when you believe on the Saviour, says Spurgeon, you must have been predestinated to do so from all eternity. Your faith is the great mark and evidence that you're chosen of God and precious in his esteem. His point there is that these things are so far ahead that we cannot see them except with the eye of faith. So we we really have to know the saving operations of God in order to have our eyes opened to see so far in the distance election, predestination, and to be reminded of the accomplishment of redemption in accordance with this eternal covenant. It's it's a beautiful image and, and Spurgeon's really working hard to hold it all together. In fact, I think we'll see that by the time he comes to the end, he's got uh, maybe a little bit carried away and his uh, his allegory has become quite ornate. But the, the second thing then, so out in the distance, you've got election, predestination, redemption, marching under the banner of the covenant. Then just before salvation, uh, you've got another army that marches. And the first one in that army is God, the Holy Spirit. Before anything can be done in our salvation, there must come that third person of the sacred trinity. Without him, faith, repentance, humility, love are things quite impossible. Even the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ cannot save until it has been applied to the heart by God, the Holy Spirit. So here you've effectively got not just a topical, but a chronological review. And uh, you've got to have the operations of the Holy Spirit before you can experience salvation for yourself. And so it's the Spirit now that he's emphasizing as being particularly at work in the, the moments before salvation arrive. Because close behind the adorable Spirit comes the thundering legion. He says, understand that the first work of God the Spirit in the soul is a terrible work. Before a man can be truly converted, he must suffer great agony of spirit. All our self-righteousness must be laid level with the ground and trampled like the miry streets. Now, he's going to be a little careful uh, at the end of the same paragraph. More or less of terrors every man must feel before he is converted. Some have less, some have more, but there must be some measure of this terrible law work in the soul or else salvation is not come to a man's house. Now, Spurgeon is being descriptive, not prescriptive. He's telling us that there must be this sense of sin, this conviction that we need salvation, that we are, are, are selfish, sinful, lost wretches in ourselves. He's not prescribing that you must feel to a certain degree this terror, that unless you have wept a certain amount or been frightened to a certain degree, you're not going to be saved but that there must be something of this truth in your soul. You must realize that you need salvation if you are to come to Jesus Christ. And so after the thundering legion follows a broken heart, 
not to be despised by men and certainly precious in the sight of God. It's a a repenting heart, a a contrite heart, a, a soul that is crying out to God. It must be pounded in the mortar of conviction, beaten in pieces with the pestle of the law, or else it can never receive the grace of the comforter in all its plenitude. But when there's a broken heart, mercy is very near. The broken heart is the prelude of healing. Ah, that's sweet to the grieving sinner. That's so precious to those of us who know and feel our sin, that a broken heart truly grieving over transgression and iniquity is a precursor to God's mercy. And so uh, after the broken heart come in what he calls the silken legion, clad not in steel, but with smiling looks and countenances full of joy, no weapons of war, no thunders to be uttered, but words of pity, their hands full of benedictions. This is the the healing, the washing, the cleansing, the, the peace of a, of a broken heart. Now it is made white as the snow of Lebanon. It's been bathed in the bath of the Saviour's blood and water and becomes pure. It's the, the experience now of salvation, the, the realities of these things at work among, in, in our hearts. And with these things, because he says we've not yet come to a full conviction of salvation, uh, following after the Silken Legion, you've got uh, another four attendants upon salvation, just as they're coming in. The four of these, repentance, humility, prayer, and a tender conscience. Humility has a downcast look. She's not sad, but she's not proud. She scarcely dares to lift her eye to the place where God's honour dwells. Her sister Repentance is by her side, watering the ground with her tears. Uh, Alongside of them is another called Prayer, a priest who prepares the way for the king, and then a tender conscience, Uh, afraid to put one foot before the other, lest it should put its foot in the wrong place, a a righteous fear of the Lord. And Spurgeon says, I used to know a conscience so tender that I wish I could feel it again. Perhaps that's something that that we experience. Perhaps we recognise what it's like to have once been very aware of, of transgression, to be very sensitive to to everything that might have offended god and and this is um this is profoundly uh real to to those who know what it is to 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 sin against god and that's something then that spurgeon is is properly emphasizing that we questioned the lawfulness of our acts before we committed it this is not some kind of spiritual, obsessive, compulsive disorder. It's concern for the glory of God. We wanted to know, would it honour the Lord? We wanted to know, would it bring glory to his name? And so you've got these uh, four characters then coming in after the Silken Legion as they begin to uh, bestow good things upon the, uh, the child of God. Salvation now arrives. Uh, these these things have gone before, but now salvation has come. 
And there are three sisters who are carrying salvation along. Faith, which lays hold on Christ and trusts all in him, that ventures everything upon his blood and sacrifice and has no other trust. Hope, that with beaming eye looks up to Jesus Christ in glory and expects him soon to come, looks downward, and when she sees grim death in her way, expects that she shall pass through with victory. And thou, sweet love, sweetest of the three, she whose words are music and whose eyes are stars, love also looks to Christ and is enamoured of him, loves him in all his offices, adores his presence, reveres his words, and is prepared to bind her body to the stake and die for him who bound his body to the cross to die for her. Now, what's what's interesting here is that actually, because Spurgeon is describing salvation in the big picture, he actually skips over salvation itself. Um, there's really not much to say about this, except that it's a, a precious casket set with gems and jewels, smitten out and fashioned upon the anvil of eternal might, and cast in the mould of everlasting wisdom. And if you like, Spurgeon's got so carried away with talking about the things that accompany salvation that he's more or less describing salvation um, and sort of missing missing it out in in its in its own allegory. So, have you got faith and hope and love? Then you have salvation. And then remember, he's he's trying to keep the whole picture in view. God in the covenant is yours. Cast your eye forward. Remember, election is yours. Predestination, sovereign decree are yours. Remember, the terrors of the law are past. The broken heart is mourning. The comforts of religion you've received. The spiritual graces are in the bud. You are an heir of immortality. And for you, there is a glorious future. It's 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 a wonderful image. It's, it's very rich. Uh, perhaps uh, today, uh, especially if we live in... Uh, certain countries, we're not actually used to seeing a display of military might uh, parading through the streets. But uh, Spurgeon perhaps would have been more accustomed to that and others uh, maybe as well. And and this is the kind of image, this martial glory as that the prizes are being displayed before us. Uh, now, he says, uh, a patience for a few more minutes. And actually, as he gets into this fourth point, I must bring up the rear guard. Uh, you, you you get the sense of a preacher who's uh, maybe tried to do too much, uh, overreached himself a little bit. He's now moving at pace. He wants to finish his allegory, uh, but he's running out of time. And so he says there are uh, four things that follow immediately after salvation, just as there were four things that went before it. Humility, repentance, prayer, and a tender conscience. Now the four that follow, gratitude, always singing. Gratitude has a son called obedience who never departs from the train of salvation. In company with this fair grace is one called consecration, a pure white spirit without earthliness belonging entirely to God and linked to this with a face serene and solemn is knowledge. Then you shall know when you follow on to know the Lord. Understanding the the mysteries, the revealed truths, the glories of God's love in Christ Jesus. Now he says, remember, these are not the heralds of salvation, but it's successors. And he says, great, if you've got those, don't forget that there are other people coming after them. 
zeal with eyes of fire and a heart of flame, a tongue that burns, an unwearying hand, untiring limbs. With zeal dwells communion, uh, the goodliest of all the train, an angel spiritualized, purified and made yet more angelic. Um, God dwelling with us and us with God. And then with communion uh, on the other side, uh, communion now is walking along with zeal's hand on one side and joy, joy in the spirit on the other, like the nightingale singing in the dark, praising God in the tempest and shouting his high praises in the storm. And you think, right, wow, that must be it. No, says Spurgeon, I've almost done. Coming after is perseverance, final, certain and sure. Oh, and sanctification as well. And uh, at the very end, death, resurrection and confidence with victory still to come. And then following everlasting songs, praise him, praise him, King of kings and Lord of lords, he has gotten himself the victory. Hallelujah, 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 world without end. Hallelujah yet again. Let the echoes of eternity perpetually cry, hallelujah, for things that accompany your salvation. Now, my friends, you might say, well, that's not a very good sermon. It's not a great exegesis. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. It's not one of these ugly so-called topical sermons that, that sometimes are criticised, where it's just a, uh, an idea, perhaps, from the, the world at large that we're going to talk about. No, Spurgeon is yoking this to Scripture. Uh, you might argue that he's not done it particularly well. I think he, he knows what he's doing, and he's zeroed in on this idea that there are certain things that go with salvation. And he's used this to draw in this glorious picture of, of its accomplishments. And it's wonderful. Uh, you might say, on a technical level, you probably, if you, were, if you were preaching in a seminary to demonstrate that you knew how to preach, I can imagine you getting ripped to pieces on this. But I, I've got to say, uh, I would hope that if I heard a man with Spurgeon's heart preach with the force uh, of this sermon from the pulpit, I'd be more than willing to say, yep, technically, let's not talk about it. But scripturally and spiritually, what a glorious depiction. What a setting forth of the riches of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And perhaps we we might do, not with dismissing technical care, exegetical accuracy, but, but digging perhaps a little bit deeper and making sure that at least when we preach, and let's be as accurate as we can be, we bring in something of this wealth of systematic understanding, this experiential or experimental sense Spurgeon is full of scripture here. He's he's preaching the experience of salvation. Now, every allegory has its limitations, and we've we've mentioned some of them. Uh, first of all, they can become a little bit ornate, um, and and secondly, sometimes in their complexity, uh, you can end up missing uh, missing the heart of things a little bit because you're you're so taken up with. Uh, the things that are are around, but but this is the point. 
salvation Spurgeon preaches week after week and day after day. Here are the things that accompany salvation. And and along the way, he wants to move your heart to understand the covenant purposes of a saving God, to get this glorious breadth and depth to your notions of salvation. Now, I'm not saying that everybody could, let alone should, preach like this. But uh, it's not wrong for us to use our imagination and to, to paint these vivid word pictures. And though we might not have the same uh, cultural connections that would allow us to preach quite like this, then perhaps a sermon like this makes us stop and ask whether or not, as preachers or as hearers, we are as taken up with salvation as we ought to be, whether or not we have this glorious sense of its whole. Could we even write out, if you like, this sort of, uh, it's almost an order of salvation, an ordo salutis in the Latin, a, a, a description of the sequence but Spurgeon brings it really into the into the experience of the uh, of the of the child of God, and he's using it to teach and to instruct and to encourage and to to exhort. These these are wonderful things, and and you can hear his delight in God and His salvation at the end. It's let's it's let God be magnified. Praise Him, praise Him, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wouldn't it be wonderful if more of us preached sermons that called from our hearts and from others the cry, Hallelujah, 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 world without end, because of God, because of his Christ, because of the Holy Spirit who is given to us, because of the things that accompany that so great salvation which he has accomplished. Well, may God bless our hearts as we contemplate these things and may we be moved to a higher esteem of him and all that he has done in us and for us through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm Jeremy Walker and you have been listening to From the Heart of Spurgeon, a podcast from Media Gratii. We would love other people to learn about these truths, so please leave us a review on your favourite podcast app Thank you very much indeed for listening.